Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Clyde. Michelle Mater is yet another creative woman with a long list of credits to her name in her 30-plus year career. They include film producer, writer, arts administrator, distribution and marketing specialist, and academic. Early in her career, Michelle worked as a staff writer-producer for Blackside Productions and as an assistant story editor at MGMUA in its featured film department. She also happens to be a founding member of KJM3 Entertainment Group, a film distribution and marketing company that specialized in multicultural film and TV projects. She oversaw the marketing and positioning of 23 movies, including the successful release of Daughters of the Dust, the highly acclaimed now classic film by Julie Dash. Michelle's well-respected film series, Creatively Speaking, has presented works by and about women and people of color for more than 20 years. In February of 2015, in partnership with the Film Society of Lincoln Center, Creatively Speaking presented Tell It Like It Is, Black Independence in New York City 1968 to 1986, which won the National Society of Film Critics Film Heritage Award. And last but certainly not least, Michelle is an associate professor of media studies and film at the New School in Manhattan. She's the recipient of several honors and awards, including the Pen and Brush Society's Accomplished Women in the Arts Award. So, Michelle, welcome and thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Sandy. It's an honor to be here. So, what about you and creativity? How did that come to pass? That's a good question. It's because I basically am from a pretty creative family. My mom, while she was never uh, professionally in the arts, she was a dancer. She was an amateur uh, interior designer. She had always been um, doing things that were creative in her own way and encouraged us to do the same. Um, my sister's a writer. Uh, my brother was, in fact, an interior decorator. And I think that it was because I have that background from from her to appreciate the arts. Mm -hmm. She used to take us to museums and galleries and uh, dance performances while we were growing up. So we were exposed to a lot. Exposed to a lot. And um, when I went to college, I knew I always was going to teach. Teaching was something I knew I was always going to do. Because you wanted to do that? Because I, I just immediately... I don't know why, like from a little girl, I knew I was going to be a teacher. Isn't that funny? I mean, when I was growing up, those were, in a sense, your only options. You could be a nurse, a teacher, or a secretary. <laughs> yeah, and teaching just seemed to be something that I knew I was immediately drawn to. And then, Well, that's performance, um, too, you know. No question. <laughs> no question. And so I think when I went to college, it was... Being having been exposed to those things, and then having the opportunity to to delve into different kinds of things, because I went to a very creative school. I went to Antioch College, mm -hmm. so that was very much encouraged to be creative and to try new things. What did you think you wanted to do when you got out of school? My undergrad uh, degree is in elementary education, okay. so I thought I was going to teach little ones, and um, I did some of that for sure. Immediately upon finishing graduate school, I did an internship actually while I was still in graduate school at Blackside Productions in Boston. And it was doing that first shoot that I rolled that piece of cable and I knew that was what I was going to do. So was that in a sense luck or happenstance that you happened to get an internship there? 
It was by happenstance. Actually, Henry Hampton was a neighbor of mine in Roxbury. He was the founder of uh, Blackside Productions. Mm -hmm. And um, we used to catch up with each other in the neighborhood. And I told him I was finishing school. He said, oh, why don't you come to an internship with us? I actually pursued a degree in um, media education, which at that time meant something very different from what it means today. Uh Uh-huh. But because of that, he said, oh, why don't you come check out the, you know, the film side, which was total happenstance. And that was that was history, as they say. Talk about Black Side. Was it an anomaly? Black Side was, in fact, quite an anomaly. Um, in the 70s, there weren't any other that I know of in the East Coast um, Black-owned film production companies. Mm-hmm. And the way that Henry dealt with the issues of the day, which were all very much, um, especially in Boston, around segregation and integrating the schools and that type of thing, was that all of our projects, we had two teams working on them at all time, a black team and a white team. Wow. Wow. (laughs) And so his perspective was that we need both perspectives in every case. And so that was that was really my awakening into um, how film could be used as a social tool, social issue tool, an educational tool, and to bring people together. And that's sort of how I really got my feet wet and, and continued to pursue film as a result of that. So how long were you there? I worked with Blackside about four years, I think. And then um, I came down to New York to work on a project, a freelance project. And then I got hooked on New York. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, you know, it's sort of been an organic um, process, I would say, uh-huh, the uh-huh. way my career has unfolded. And I can't say that I would have done anything differently. I really can't. So you come to New York after Blackside. I worked on several documentaries, as well as some uh, after-school specials uh, when I was here in New York. In what capacity? As a producer. Mm -hmm. Um, Did you know what you were doing? And I don't mean that snarkily. (laughs) Henry Hampton prepared as well. Uh, Having spent four years there, I was pretty confident in my producing skills. And that's what you wanted to do. And it was funny because, um, you know, people always look at producing as not being very creative. And I found it to be very creative and also very kind of liberating as opposed to being a director. I didn't want to be a director. I never wanted to be a director. Because a producer's in charge in a different way? It's a creativity that stretches beyond just the page, right? So you you have to think on your feet. You have to be creative in how you go about raising money. Mm-hmm. You have to be creative in how you deal with people, relationships, because that's what makes a good producer. And I really found that that was that was my niche, not necessarily being the director. So that was of more of a camera. natural act for you. For me, it was. What years are you doing this? Oh my goodness, you're asking hard. Oh, questions a decade. Now. Why don't we do a decade? Um, that was late seventies, early eighties. Yeah. So that begs the question: How many Michelle Materas were doing that? There were a couple of us at Blackside at the okay, time. Okay, well, that was there. Judy mm-hmm. Richardson, uh, who now is an amazing lecturer, she was very active actually in the civil rights movement and has taken that that um, set of uh, skill sets into a, a direction, which has been an amazing career for her. Jackie Scherer, who is not around anymore, she's an amazing documentary producer. But we were all sort of novices at the time, but really got our feet wet. And So um, you weren't doing this alone, that there were other yous there. Absolutely, absolutely. Because you hear this lament about the lack of female directors, producers, although that has clearly changed now, and and also in terms of in women of color. Now, there weren't a lot of us, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, 
One of my best friends is also Nima Barnett, who's a pretty well-known television director. And um, she directed one of the films that we we produced for Blackside. And she and I have been friends for over 30 years as a result of that. Um, she And she has gone on to have a very successful career in uh, Hollywood. But Wonderful. yeah, a lot of us really got our feet wet during that time. And... Um, Kind of it's, trial by fire ish. I was gonna say it's been it's been a struggle a lot of times, mm-hmm. but it, and and definitely a learning curve and an ongoing learning process, mm-hmm. but definitely rewarding at the same time. So, what prompted you to start KJM Three Entertainment? And are those initials? Those or, were our initials. initials. <laughs> Yours and totally, your partners. Totally uncreative. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, but we'll cut you slack for that. Thank That's you so okay. much. Um, the M3 part was kind of creative because there were three M's. Better than M&M, right? <laughs> exactly. But yeah, um, my business partners at the time were Catherine Bowser, Joy Huckabee, Mark Walton, and Marlon Adams. And so that was the KJM, and I was one of the three M's. And... Um, we actually saw the film together at the first screening that it w- the Daughters of the Dust had at the Anthology Film Archives um, back when it was first completed, before it went to um, public television. And we all came out of that screening crying, sobbing. I think that for those listeners not in the know, you you got to do the backstory of the potency of Daughters of the Dust. Sure. So Daughters was um, the first time an African-American female, wrote, directed, produced, had a film theatrically commercially released in the U.S. in 1992. And we were the the sort of ground stone place that that happened. When you we, launched it. We found uh, Kino International, which was the, ended up being the distributor. They hired us as the marketing consultants. And as a result, that film, um, on a very limited budget, was about to go straight to public television. We saw that film and said, this would be a travesty. If this film doesn't get a theatrical release and be seen on a big screen, it will be a travesty to have that not happen. And we sort of formed our company immediately around this act and this idea. And um, we're, we're successful, luckily, Um Joy Huckabee had some uh, contacts in the film industry. We did another small screening. We got some industry folks there. And out of that came the uh, Kino International deal. Talk about what the film is about. Daughters of the Dust is a day in the life of a family making a transition from their home islands of the Sea Islands off the coast of Georgia and South Carolina to the mainland and back at the turn of the century, 1900. And at that time, it was very recent that slaves had stopped being uh, sold off of those islands, even though slavery was abolished in 1860-whatever. A lot of slave trading was still going on in those back islands. And so this family was um, very tight-knit, They were very close to their African roots, which they carried with them. And as a result, when some of the family members had made it to the mainland and come back, they bring these um, sort of ideas of pie in the sky and streets paved with gold and all of those things that we we anticipate uh, going there or hope for. (laughs) And they come back and they say, "Mm, it's not exactly that. But still, some of them went on to the mainland. Some of them stayed back in the islands. And it's just the most most touching 
and very historical and very accurately historical uh, women-centered film that we have, especially back in the 90s. And to think about 92 being the first time. Yeah, that that's jaw 25 years ago. Yeah. People yeah. don't believe it. My students don't believe it when I tell them this. They're like, really? 25 years ago? Exactly. Exactly. Did Julie Dash write the screenplay? Yes, she did. So she was the chief cook and bottle washer Absolutely. for this. And so that's even more astonishing, Absolutely. isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I've seen the film. It's breathtaking in its beauty. Mm-hmm. The cinematography is just gorgeous. And like a documentary, it is also a film that teaches you what I clearly did not know, even though I have been to the Gullah Islands. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. And it was really Defusky Island. Yes. Yes, it was a wonderful experience. Oh, then you must have really related to the to the storyline then. Yes, but it was so, so layered more. that I didn't know so that. So much more. Yeah. Yes. So this big first project for you was a success, or was did you feel that it was even though it got distribution, it was like pushing a rock up a mountain. I mean, come oh, on, was... hey, it's about black people, and it's a directed and written by an African-American woman, and, you know. It was definitely a success, and it was it was actually a phenomenal success in many ways. When the film opened here in New York uh, at the Film Forum, it was sold out every day, every show, for two weeks. And typically, when that happens, a the theater wants to keep the film there. But unfortunately, the film forum had other commitments. And so the, we moved from the film forum over to Village East Cinemas. Not not Village Cinemas, Village East, the ones on 2nd Avenue. Mm, on Manhattan's Lower East Side. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And we did not miss a step, which is very unheard of. When a film has to move over, typically you lose audience. And theater goers followed you. But theater goers followed us. The film played for another six weeks. Wow. Very successfully. Again, sold out every day, every every screening, and um, leading up to the American Masters release on public television. But did the film play nationally? It played in 18 markets around the country. We had a budget of, get this, $150,000. To promote the film? To promote the film. What does that get you? <laughs> well, then I guess back more then, than what it would today. Yes, definitely. However, we did not have social media back then. Yeah, that's a good point. We did not have the internet. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so we developed um, what we call a guerrilla marketing campaign. And it was in each of the markets that we the film was going into, we hired a local person who knew that marketplace, mm-hmm. who knew that audience. And we called it our cultural grassroots. We knew that if people who went to, say, Alvin Ailey performance in Kansas City would be interested in seeing something like Daughters of the Dust. So we would target events like that and do flyering and hand out flyers to people at subway stops, at Isn't bus stops. Wild? Right. Um, and at, at the end of, of performances like that, different cultural events. And um, word of mouth was amazingly successful and brought busloads and busloads of people into the theater. When you look back over your career, without my putting words in your mouth, would you consider the distribution of Daughters of the Dust, if not the one of the biggest seminal professional moments of your life? Most definitely. 
one of the most seminal in my career, um, if not the, because it hasn't been anything like it since then. Isn't that something? Um, and Julie has not been able to get another film like that produced, if you can imagine. <sighs> yeah. Not that she doesn't have the script sitting there waiting. For, not that she hasn't written novels. Not that she hasn't done other kinds of creative projects, directing, producing, writing. She's working on a documentary right now on Vernamate Grosner, who was actually in Daughters of the Dust, and did the travels with the Geechee girl, the travel notes of a Geechee girl, who's, um, she was a, a cook, a chef, mm-hmm. and um, a culinary expert, and an actress, and a singer. I mean, she was like this amazing Renaissance woman. She's recently passed away. Uh, she's trying to get that finished. She's done music videos. She's done television shows. She did one a, a CBS special on um, Rosa Parks a few years ago. And she's been very busy, but just has not been able to get her next creative project like this. That that size. Off the ground, yeah. And speaking of size, so that was obviously a very big deal for you. And then what came along after the distribution of of that film? Take us again on your professional path. With KJM3, we did uh, released um, several more feature films, including um, a film by Raoul Peck called The Man by the Shore. If you remember now Raoul Peck's name, he's the director of I Am Not Your Negro. Mm-hmm. And back mm-hmm. in that time, at that time, he was not a household name mm-hmm. like he is today. Mm-hmm. So we like to think we had something to do with his. And why not? <laughs> and with his uh, career getting launched here in the States, he's always been very popular in Europe. And most of the money for his films have come from Europe. But he never really quite made that transition to be as well known here until this I'm not your Negro. And we're so thrilled for him because he's so well deserved. I was it. just going to say, yeah. Oh, my goodness. He's such an amazing talent. And so we were very proud of, his, of our accomplishment with that film as well. I continued to work with Women Make Movies for several more years and then went and worked. We always worked so full time while we were doing KJM3. None of us quit our jobs to do this full time. Wow. And so it was truly a labor of love. Yeah. <laughs> We actually also had an interaction with Harvey Weinstein (laughs) because we worked with Charles Burnett on his film, The Glass Shield, which was released by uh, Miramax. Oh, Miramax. Okay, not the one. Back in the day, Mm -hmm. Miramax. Mm -hmm. And so that was quite an interesting uh, Experience. experience and interchange because we, again... You know, Charles asked for them to hire us as the as the consultant, marketing consultant, because his experience with other distributors like Samuel Goldwyn, who did To Sleep With Anger, was not that good. He didn't feel that people really understood who his audience was like we would after having seen what we did with Daughters. And so he insisted that uh, they hire us, which um, they did, but then didn't listen to a thing that we said. Really? Mm-hmm. And... Um, assumed that they knew all that there was to know about how to get a film like this into the right audiences and released it at the wrong time and released it with the wrong message. Oh, what a and, shame. And it really was a shame because I don't know if you've ever seen that film. It's available now. But that was another very unique... It was about a young man uh, in the police force, a young black man in the police force in an elite area, something like Redondo Beach, California, mm-hmm. who was brought up on charges because he had a conflict about who he was. Was he going to be 
a representative of his community or was he going to stay at the the blue under the blue umbrella mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so that's where the glass shield as opposed to the glass ceiling came from and it was a wonderful film thriller m- uh, mystery but also very social issue based so you know we think we had something uh, yeah, to do no, with yeah you can keep around careers. for that <laughs> absolutely <laughs> What prompted you to start this film series, Creatively Speaking? My partner with KJM3, Catherine Bowser, and I, we kept finding that there were all these amazing uh, short films that black filmmakers were creating, but nobody ever saw them. That they would basically use them as sort of resume pieces to go on to try and get their next um, bigger projects. But they were amazing work. And sometimes I've always thought making a short film... If you have a successfully completed short film that tells a story well, that's more difficult than making a long film because you have a very small period sure, of time. Sure, it's to very do compacted. It. Absolutely. But and they're so hard to distribute. So, what we did was we found that by grouping films together thematically, short films, mm-hmm. creating feature length programs, that people were attracted to that format. One of our main topics that we like to use was called Girls' Night Out. And so it would be a group of films, four or five films, all produced and directed by women. And we'd have these amazing audiences because each one of those five filmmakers would bring their own audiences. And and again, word of mouth, we we started having a little bit of internet back at that point. Mm-hmm. But this is 20, 22 years ago now, um, but still very light on that part, that we found that there was a huge audience for this kind of work. And so we started off uh, at Aaron Davis Hall in Harlem, and we would produce the series there uh, a couple times a year. Mm -hmm. And then we moved to BAM in Brooklyn. Brooklyn uh, Academy of Music. Brooklyn Academy of Music. Mm -hmm. And then Harlem Stage, when Harlem Stage moved, became Harlem Stage instead of Aaron Davis Hall. We produced it there as well. And since then, it's sort of traveled with me. So as my uh, teaching career has taken me to places like uh, the University of the West Indies and Barbados, we've had showings all over uh, the Caribbean as well as the West Coast and the East Coast now. We're back at BAM starting soon. And you mean we, to have a home there? We have about five programs at BAM over the course of the year. And that each program will contain a series of short films? Of some, not all shorts. So we've sort of branched out, um, but that was how we started. And as a result, people started coming to us with their work, uh-huh. saying, here we have this film. I don't know what to do with it. And so that's how we've sort of continued. I've sort of continued working with um, independent filmmakers, helping them to distribute and market their work. You know, this kind of begs the question, how easy, how hard is it for independent filmmakers to get financial backing, to make the film? It's a really tough career because how do you make a living doing this? Well, and you you always have to have something else going to fall on. fall back That's on. Yeah. Absolutely. Not, and not necessarily fall back on, but to supplement. Um, I've always tell my students there are several kinds of positions that go into filmmaking that people don't look at as careers. But to be a grip, to be a sound engineer, to be a um, script continuity person, to all of these things are uh, film-related, and they all are specific skills. An editor, of course, 
and to be around a film community is definitely going to be helpful to you. And you can learn so much. And you can learn so much and you can make an income at the same time. Mm -hmm. I don't know too many people who have the wherewithal to only create their own work. And film is not made in a vacuum. Film is very much a team effort. And also your content has to come from somewhere. So if you're not exposed to other people and other ideas, where does that content point. come from? And Good where point. does your perspective as a filmmaker come from? Mm-hmm. So I always tell my students to not think of it as such a, um, a one-way, narrow, very narrow kind of thing. You have to be open to other opportunities, and you have to be willing to, to commit to learning those other skills as well. And that all along is going to make you a, a better filmmaker in the long run. How did that impact you in terms of teaching about this? What was it that drew you to the college level? Sharing your expertise? That's a really, that's a really good question. Definitely sharing my expertise, but I think also as a as a, a scholarly pursuit of my own, being a nerd that I am, <laughs> um, you know, wanting to learn more, wanting to be exposed to new ideas and, and different perspectives, mm-hmm. because that's one thing that I, I love about the new school is our our population, our student population is about 40% international. And so we have in a classroom, I could have students from 10 different countries mm-hmm. in one class. And so having a conversation about race, ethnicity, and class and media with people from 10 different countries can be quite mind-opening. Oh, I bet. And so... And exhilarating. Totally exhilarating. Totally, you know, you're. I'm always learning. I always say to my students, I learn more from them than they could possibly learn from me. I also saw the connection with the film, that, you know, film as a tool, a teaching tool, as mm. an educational tool. And so it never seemed to be two different things. It always seemed to be able to fit together, weave together very naturally and, and holistically. When I first thought about teaching in the college level, a good friend of mine who's Korean, um, we had this idea that we wanted to team teach. So we presented an idea for a course called African and Asian American Images in the Media. And so nobody had ever done anything like that. Yeah, really. (laughs) (laughs) And so um, that was how I first got started teaching at NYU. We did this this course as a team, and then we brought it to the new school, and then the new school hired me as a uh, full-time teacher. So So, uh, in addition to your academic career, you're still out there looking for films oh, absolutely. trying to make matches absolutely and and you also were you seminal in redistributing daughters of the dust actually they brought me into the process which was wonderful because it did get me to be involved with it but 25 no, years later 25 years later but Cohen Media Group was really responsible for that and uh, UCLA did the restoration of the film which is the version that you saw that mm-hmm. that beautifully restored uh version mm-hmm. but um I actually got to do the audio commentary with Julie that's on the Blu-ray. So that was really fun. And um, we did a bunch of speaking engagements together uh, with the release of the re-release of the film. Just parenthetically, I've interviewed a lot of female directors, much more than I would have ever expected. Most of them documentary filmmakers, not that there is anything wrong with that. But I feel that maybe that part of the conversation can we can move past it a little bit, or am I being naive? You mean in terms of Females. there not being w- enough women yes. doing it? Yes. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think we're just maybe getting to the point of people beginning to recognize 
that there's there's this another gender out there. There's this inequity, yeah. That mm-hmm. there is this inequity, um, and the people are being conscious of trying to make um, make some changes in that direction. An example is coming up as the new uh, New York Women in Film and Television Muse Award, um, which is an annual event, and we highlight women in various aspects of the industry. And there's about 1,200 people that attend this luncheon uh, every year. And Julie is receiving one of the Muse Awards. Julie Dash is receiving one of the Muse Awards. which Long time coming. Which has been, yes, should have happened a long time ago. But those are the kinds of things that are just still happening and still in need of. Every year we go to these awards, we hear the women who are in high-profile positions speaking about their careers, and they've had a struggle as well. And it's not like it's going away anytime soon. Do you have a lot of women in your classes? Mostly women. Mostly women. Mostly women, mm-hmm. which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, minority women? A lot of minority women, mm-hmm. which is very encouraging. Every You ask me how hopeful am I. I am so hopeful every year, every time I teach, every semester. There's always amazing students that come out of my classes that give me not only hope, but really con- cement what I do. And, validate. And validate and, and keep me focused on what I do because I can see the impact of what we're doing in that classroom. Isn't that the best? That is the best. It is the best. And that's that's the reason that we, we teach, you know. Tell us how people can get in touch or hear about the Creatively Speaking film series. We have a website, which Shoot. is Go for it. creativelyspeaking.tv. And we also have a Facebook page and Instagram, um, which you can keep up on all of our events. We have several coming up. We have some things going on in um, Washington, D.C., in Miami. Yeah. So you, you're in a good place, aren't you, for Michelle? You know, I cannot complain at all. Well, I, I'll teach you how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I feel very rewarded and very grateful that I have the opportunity to, to enjoy so much what I do. Isn't that the best? It is the best. It is the best. And to see that I can have an impact on younger people, and sometimes not so younger people because I teach adults as well, but just to to be able to have an interchange with people from various cultures, from various backgrounds, and to see how how much more alike we are, as Maya Angelou says, than Mm -hmm. we are different. And every time I teach, particularly this class, the race ethnicity class, it's much more obvious to all of us that that's the case. And that if you touch one person and they touch one person, then hopefully, you know, this can continue. Some of my students are very, um, you know, younger people are very anxious and, and not very patient about how change happens. And when I tell them this, you know, the story about what I do and how I've done it, it's like, believe me, if we didn't keep doing what we do, None of you would be sitting you here. You totally laid the foundation for them. You would not be sitting here exactly right now. Right. And mm-hmm. you don't know where you, what you end up doing will have the same impact. Exactly. So. Well, you've had an impact for sure, Michelle Matera. I can't thank you enough for oh, having a conversation with me. Are we done me. already? Oh, my <laughs> We've goodness. done for a while. <laughs> it went fast. It usually does. That's the joy of what I do. Thank you so much thank for you sharing so much, your, Sandy. your life with it's us. It's been my pleasure. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Nobody, but-